Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining us today on a bonus podcast is Mayor Ted Terry. Mayor Terry, thanks for coming back to Peach Pod. Yes, thank you for having me, Kyle. So there have been some developments in in your race. You are a Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate, uh, seeking to be the Democratic nominee in that seat that will challenge David Perdue uh, in next year's elections. Um, And there's a few developments that I just wanted to catch up with you on. And and the first of these developments is uh, Medicare for All. So a little over a week ago, you embraced a more expansive health policy, Medicare for All, by talking about long-term care in a blog post on your website. So could you describe for our listeners what long-term care is and what some of the challenges we face as a country and as a society are in providing long-term care to our aging loved ones? Yeah, certainly, Kyle. Um, so we're, first, I'll just start off by um, saying that when I uh, uh, was in college, I worked my way through uh, three years um, as a nursing assistant at a long-term care facility. It was a nursing home that had patients who um, had Alzheimer's and dementia who uh, were you know, at the end stages of their life, life um, hospice patients, as well as people who, um, uh, who had disabilities and needed rehab or had multiple sclerosis or had been in car accidents. And oftentimes they were younger or you know, middle-aged people who who just, you know, because of a, an illness or an accident, um, you know, needed extra care. Uh, they needed another person or a facility to help them, you know, to basically live. And so, you know, that experience at that time, I mean, this is almost you know, 15 years ago, um, I I've, I've saw firsthand, you know, how really, I think, disjointed and, and quite honestly broken our long-term care system is in this country. You know, just even back then, it's gotten even worse. And the reality is that, you know, most Americans um, either don't have or can't afford can't afford long-term care insurance, and the reason why uh, private insurers don't cover long-term care is because it's the most expensive part of the the healthcare system, um, and it basically is you know the the end of your life. And this is the last three to five years of people's lives who may have chronic conditions, who may have Alzheimer's or dementia, who have, may have uh, Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis, um, or just you know congestive heart issues or, you know, what they call COPD, you know, the, the, the illnesses of, 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 of aging, basically. And as we uh, increase our life expectancy in America, we will have just more and more people with these chronic conditions that will require some form of uh, additional care. Um, and uh, so we just, uh, you know, to give a kind of a, a preview of what we're talking about, I mean, we have the, the baby boomer generation is is aging, it's retiring. Our parents, our grandparents, um, they are getting to the point of their lives where you know they're going to need more and more care. And so the uh, Centers for um, Medicare projects that we're looking at uh, upwards of 45 million Americans are going to be in the long-term care, uh, quote-unquote, system or need long-term care um, in the next 25, 30 years. And so this is a, a gray wave that is has already arrived for a lot of Americans, for a lot of Georgians who are dealing with an aging uh, loved one, a parent, and having to figure out if, who, how, who's going to take care of mom, who's going to take care of dad, how can we afford to you know send them to a nursing home or assisted living, um, and it's it's only going to get you know those those numbers are only going to get more and more, and it's going to put a real financial strain on the Medicare and Medicaid systems in our country. So 
you described a little bit about working in long-term care during college. What is that work like? And and what is that work like for people who work as home health aides or, or personal care aides now? And would your Medicare for All proposal, do you think that it would n- enable higher pay for people who are doing that kind of work? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, look, um, we're going to need another million nursing assistants in the next uh, two decades just to be able to cover increase in people who are going to need long-term care. Um, I worked as a nursing assistant, and so this is basically um, the, the job at the nursing home or at the home, home health care that is, you know, if, usually 24 hours um, in most long-term care situations. Sometimes there's some patients who and uh, residents who only need it for, you know, uh, sort of, you know, eight or 16 hours a day, uh, not the full 24 hours. Um, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it's cooking, it's cleaning, um, it's um, helping shower, it's bathing, it's cleaning up. I mean, you know, there's uh, helping, you know, uh, feed them. I mean, it's, this is the, uh, the it's personal care assistance. So all the things that you do in your normal life when you become older and become disabled or, you know, frail or have, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or, you know, have injuries. I mean, these are things you just can't do by yourselves. So you need someone else to help you get dressed in the morning, to brush your teeth, to change your diapers if you are incontinent. And so, you know, and, and, I, and I used to think that like the hardest part of that job was the cleaning up. You know, you had to do the messy things um, and the things that, you know, are not glamorous. But to be honest, the hardest part of this job, uh, of that job, was that you um, actually spent most of your time being a friend uh, to this person. Um, in fact, actually, you know, nursing assistants will spend more time with your loved ones than than you will as, you know, a son or a daughter, you know, or, a, you know, a family member. And so, you know, one, the 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 level of dignity um, and, and friendship um, that goes into just, you know, the uh, a patient and a loved one who is in the long term care system is, is so is so uh, broad, you know, it's. It's a part of the job that's, that's that's hard because as you develop friendships and you get to meet people and hear their stories and learn about, you know, the things that they've done over their lives and you just meet so many interesting people, um, you know, who, you know, are who in some cases are losing their memories or you know are, are you know in the process of dying, and you become their friends and then you you know you come into work one day and and you find out that they they died you know the week before or they died last night, and and so that's an aspect of the job that is is you know, quite frankly, very difficult. Um, and so it just, it speaks to me the, the, you know, the importance of having, you know, a, a fair wage, um, having a skilled workforce, you know, really valuing the workers and the caregivers, you know, in our society who do some of the hardest work that quite frankly, a lot of people don't want to do. And it's something that, you know, is, is very, uh, you know, is, is, is on the top of my mind because I've, you know, one worked in it. Um, you know, while I was working as a nursing assistant, Kyle, I my grandmother was moved into an assisted living facility uh, because she wasn't wealthy. She had to sell off all of her assets, uh, an estate sale, sell her home. She had a beautiful beach house, uh, two blocks um, from the beach on Panama City Beach, where she would had retired, and you know she had developed a COPD and just needed a little extra care. And because we couldn't afford for the home health care, we opted to put her into a, a managed care assisted living. 
And I knew for a fact that she didn't want to go there. She wanted to stay in her home. She wanted to be around her things, around her friends and family. And um, But we just really had no other choice. There was no one locally in our family that could take care of her. And so we had to sell all of her assets and we moved her into the nursing home, assisted living facility, and she died that night. And, you know, it's one of those things there where, you know, you think like, you know, how many other families, you know, would want that opportunity for their loved one to, to age with dignity uh, and grace um, surrounded by their homes, by their loved ones, where, you know, now the system is so expensive that we have to basically warehouse our loved ones and, and nursing homes where, you know, the standard of care is, you know, is, um, is different. Um, in fact, actually, if you've been following the Atlanta Journal Constitution, they've just, you know, done an investigative report where there's, you know, lots of issues at nursing homes around the state that are, you know, violating basic standards. And, you know, these are people's, you know, family, family members, um, and it could be our family members one day as well. So th- this is a really difficult policy issue to tackle, but the, po- the politics here are challenging also. I know you told me on Twitter that you support a representative Pramila Jayapal's Medicare for All bill. It's one that I, I think, is, as far as I understand the various legislation out there, it's the most expansive in terms of coverage for long-term care. But the starting point for maybe estimating the support for Medicare for All in the Senate is probably Senator Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All legislation. That currently has 14 co-sponsors in the Senate, two of which are also running for president and don't exactly describe their health care plans the way that Bernie Sanders does. Um, so how do you anticipate building support among your own colleagues in the Senate for this legislation should you end up there in 2021? Well, look, you know, I, my experience as mayor in Clarkston um, is is how I approach, you know, uh, working with with colleagues, um, the the mayor in Clarkston is basically the president of the city council, and so I preside over um, all of our uh, council meetings. I'm in, I'm in you know the the leader when it comes to the policymaking work in the city, and I can tell you you know when when I first brought up issues like marijuana decriminalization and election day as a holiday and fifteen dollar minimum wage and a hundred percent clean energy, um, I you know just believe me like. The, my colleagues were like, what? Like, that's crazy. Like, why would we do that? And so, you know, look, I mean, I'm a, I approach politics and policymaking from a, an area of consensus building. But I also know that you don't go into negotiations already giving away all of the things that you want to give away. And so you have to stake out your position and where, where you believe you where we ought to go from the get go. And you should not you know, you shouldn't be you know, willing to compromise right away on that. Um, and so if there is opportunities, for instance, you know, if we can't get a Medicare for all bill passed in the Senate, well, you better, you know, darn believe that I'm going to fight to get some sort of, you know, increase in long-term care funding, whether it's through Medicare or, you know, through some sort of funding at Medicaid um, at the state level. You know, the, the issue of long-term care is as much an aging issue as it is a woman's issue. And the, the studies show that women are more likely well, one, women are two thirds of all the caregivers in our country, and that um, that women are more likely to forego uh, job promotions or you know full time work or economic opportunities in deference of taking care of a loved one. And so we need to recognize that if we don't solve the long term care crisis in our country, it actually puts at risk a lot of the gains that women have made in the workforce just in the last few decades. And so, you know, so in that regard, you know, I would 
try to work with with uh, Senate with women senators um, and um, work with you know senators and try to appeal to um, you know a, a commonality and that's that we all have aging loved ones um, and, and how are we going to pay for it and my belief right now is and based on the numbers that I've seen is that there's no way that we can keep Medicare and Medicaid solvent in light of this potential gray wave unless we have a truly universal system that everyone is paying into. We can't bifurcate a public option and have private assurance on the side. We just simply don't have the time to wait for you know, people, as they say, the, oh, people will move into the public option because it'll be better. The, the system is at risk of collapse now, and we're just within you know, a decade or less of more money being drawn out of Medicare than is being put in. So another place where you've taken a more expansive view of policy recently is on climate change and the environment. A couple of weeks ago, you endorsed a Green New Deal. Now, as an observer, it seems to me that there's broad agreement within democratic politics that climate change is a wicked problem that needs bold solutions. But the Green New Deal, as it stands now, is really more of a statement of principles and goals rather than a policy roadmap. So could you put some policy substance for us on this for us? What is What are some things like either the magnitude of investment or the target dates for net zero emissions goals? What are some of the nuts and bolts of this that you think are important for turning the Green New Deal as it, as it exists now into a policy tool that can combat climate change? Well, the policy uh, proposal I'm supporting is Bernie Sanders' Green New Deal platform. Um, it's by far the most expansive, the most comprehensive uh, proposal that's out there. And I mean, you know, look, it's, you know, it's about 60 pages long. And so there's a lot in there that you can get into. But let's look at just the realities of, of Georgia. So if, um, if the Green New Deal was to be passed, there would be tremendous investment in solar energy. And because Georgia is the third best state in terms of solar energy potential, Georgia uh, farmers, uh, you know, every county in Georgia would have some opportunity for uh, investment in what is our number one natural resource, and that's the sun. The the other policy, so you know, the, the goal of getting to 100% clean energy doesn't mean you just have to do all 100% clean energy. It actually, what it really is, is you use 50% less energy as you are increasing your, you know, from dirty energy to clean energy, solar or wind, and then even geothermal and, you know, tidal, you know, in in the margins. But in order to um, use 50% less energy, we need a a massive energy efficiency and weatherization program across all sectors, residential, commercial, and industrial. Um, And this means, you know, as simple as going into people's homes and offering them uh, basically pay-as-you-save programs where you upfront, you pay for the energy-efficient retrofits, the, the attic insulation, the smart thermostats, the, the more efficient appliances, uh, the double-pane windows. Uh, you try to re- uh, reduce those energy consumptions for you know, individual people first, pay for it upfront, and then pay for those savings over the life of um, you know, the, the, the quote-unquote loan in the energy bill. And so this is a very efficient way that's been the program has been done in 20 other states uh, at the utility side. Uh, Georgia Power is experimenting with it in Savannah right now, but it's a proven program that helps people lower their power bills. Um, and of course, you know, the ultimate goal is to reduce, uh, you know, power consumption. And so we have to implement, you know, a large scale weatherization um, and, you know, an inter- building retrofit program. 
Um, and then the last thing, you know, the, I think maybe the core other, the third sort of key aspect of a Green New Deal that I'm thinking about is just that it goes back to the decentralization of power that I talked about the last time you had me on, Kyle. You know, the Green New Deal will not be successful if it's run by, um, out of a Washington bureaucracy. The, the principle of the Green New Deal is that, that every community has their own issue. And so we need to provide local support, local funding uh, to local communities that are addressing local problems that are led by local leaders. And it doesn't need, it cannot be a top-down approach. It has to be a community-by-community approach. And so what, you know, the, the challenges and problems and issues that we want to face in Clarkston, those priorities might be different than they would be in Statesboro or, you know, in Coweta County, where I'm, I've just left from Coweta County, headed up to Dawson County up in North Georgia. And so we have to, you know, to recognize that, you know, there's a lot of people on the ground who, you know, quite frankly, know exactly what they need to do, um, but they don't have the funding, they don't have the resources, they don't have the tools to implement those those changes that we so desperately need. So another issue that touches on your experience as mayor of, of Clarkston is the issue of refugee resettlement. And in and last month, the Trump administration announced that they were cutting the number of refugees that the U.S. would admit from 30,000 to 18,000. And that is an 85% cut in the number of refugees admitted as compared to the goals at the end of the Obama administration. Their goal was, I believe, 110,000 at, at the end of his term. So you as the mayor of Clarkston, you're the mayor of this town that is commonly referred to as the most diverse square mile in the country. Can you describe for our listeners what the cost of this massive reduction in refugee resettlement is on the people who would seek refugee status in this country? What what kinds of things are these people uh, either escaping from or, or trying to get to and trying to resettle from their home countries into the U.S.? It's a great question. So there's two sort of sides of this. One, there's American leadership in the world. We, as of right now, are in the worst humanitarian and migration crisis uh, in modern history. You'd have to go back to World War II to see this many millions of people who have been forced to flee their homes. And so we have 23 million people that are in refugee status, 16 million that are asylum seekers, and another 60 million that are internally displaced within their own country. So nearly 100 million people around the world, because of no fault of their own, have been forced to flee their homes, and in some cases, as refugees, their national boundaries. And at least in the short term, and oftentimes in the long term, they can't go back to where they came from. Because where they came from is dangerous. It's They're being persecuted because of their religion, their political ideology, their sexual orientation, uh, their ethnicity, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the fact of just who they are. And so uh, America, you know, for decades through Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, you know, through Republican and Democratic administrations has kept intact the core essence of what the refugee resettlement program is. That's about providing a, a small sliver of a, this larger population that, you know, through no fault of their own has, has lost everything and is, is invited to start their lives over as new Americans. It is an opportunity for America to lead by example. Um, and you know, in the, the, the unfortunate reality of the rhetoric around anti-immigrants um, and anti-refugees is, is that it's, it's, it's percolated into the actual policies of the government. And, and this is at a time when people are talking about reducing, you know, border crossings and, you know, you know quote unquote, illegal immigration. Well, refugees are, one, legal immigrants. And two, it is the most highly vetted way to immigrate to America. 
I mean, if you want to come through as a refugee, you are you are the most highly scrutinized of all other ways to immigrate. And so my argument would be that if you're if, if you're like David Perdue, who wants to cut in half legal immigration, and if you're like Donald Trump, who doesn't even want to allow the, the DACA students to become you know, pathway to citizenship, uh, and if you really are worried about, you know, bad people sneaking into this country, then you would recognize that the safest way and the most highly vetted way to immigrate to this country is through the refugee resettlement program. And so we should be increasing refugee resettlement. And the number one reason, other than just it being the humanitarian and the compassionate thing to do, is that our economy here in Georgia and in other parts of the country are actually very dependent upon refugee workforce. There's a, a, a sad reality um, in Georgia that in certain sectors of our economy, the hospitality sector, the uh, food uh, services, food packaging, uh, the chicken and poultry industry, those are jobs in Georgia that most American-born workers will not do. Refugees are the vast majority of workers in some of these industries, um, and they, they do it with pride and they do it with vigor because they've taken this this opportunity uh, to start their lives over um, in such a gracious and, um, and and grateful way, and so they, they really pay it forward. And you know, we call refugees new Americans because they're some of the most patriotic people that you'll ever meet. And for the town of Clarkston, you know, 50% of our population is foreign-born. You know, we have a whole economy based around uh, refugee resettlements. Uh, we have agencies and nonprofits that provide job training and English classes and tutoring and after-school programs and orientation programs that, you know, help new Americans and refugees integrate and, you know, learn how to live in this new country. You know, you hear all the time, you know, why can't these immigrants, you know, learn how to be Americans? Well, that's where settlement programs and these nonprofits, that's exactly what they do. They actually teach new Americans how to be an American, you know, and it's not, it's not assimilation, it's integration. And so, you know, they're still a part of their culture and a part of their identity that's with them. But, you know, they're going to learn how to take MARTA. They're going to learn how to drive. If they become citizens, uh, you know, one day they register to vote and maybe even run for office, you know, and open up a business, employ people, you know, give back to the community, volunteer, you know, um, participate in our local, uh, you know, public art programs um, in Clarkston. And so these are people that are, you know, uh, important and, you know, really, you know, vital parts and, and of the fabric of Clarkston's community. And, you know, they deserve a little dignity. And this this funding that's going to be reduced because, you know, going into this next fiscal year, you know, several of these agencies are going to have to um, lay off workers. Um, and the biggest concern there is that there's a uh, an, ex, uh, uh, an institutional knowledge of people who have been in this this um, in this work, this line of work of helping new Americans become Americans. Those people could be, you know, fired because the the, the grants and the funding isn't there, and we risk losing a lot of that that experience, which has made the resettlement program such a successful program. You know, though we have a 90% self-sufficiency rate here in Georgia of a new refugee family being self-sufficient within the first 180 days. And that is an exact example of how, you know, refugees are not a charity case. You know, it's very much a help them when they first come for the first six months. But after that, it's, you know, it's on your own, you know, and 90% of them are, are, you know, have a job, they're paying taxes, they're paying back the plane ticket that, you know, was loaned to them to come over to this country. Uh, their kids are enrolled in school, they're learning English, they're participating in the local economy. Um, and they're some of the safest residents uh, that you'll ever, that we'll ever have. I mean, when refugee resettlement went up in Clarkston under George W. Bush and Barack Obama, 
the crime rate went down. So I know you got a lot of miles to cover, and I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but there's one bit of craziness in Washington that I was hoping you would be able to weigh in on for us. So in the last couple of weeks, it's come to light via whistleblower's report and the president's own admission that he is asking foreign countries to investigate a domestic political rival of his. All of this while he held up military aid in Ukraine, one of the nations he pressured, and while he's in high-stakes trade negotiations with China, the other country that he has pressured. Amidst the disclosures on military aid, you announced that you supported an impeachment inquiry into President Trump. So what do you make of these latest revelations? And in your view, why are the president's actions here an abuse of his authority? Well, yeah, look, I mean, the, the, the whole impeachment inquiry, you know, phraseology kind of gets twisted around. Um, but I mean, the, the, at the end of the day, it's get more evidence. It's investigate um, the House. You know, the, the, the legislative branch has a responsibility of oversight over the executive branch. And so I think that's exactly what's happening here. And, you know, look, I'll, I'll agree with Senator Marco Rubio. He tweeted uh, the other day. He said, uh, you know, it just seems like this, uh, you know, the Democrats are trying to, you know, undo an election and, you know, and, and it could be a political coup. And they really should, you know, gather evidence before they you know launch into this this witch hunt and this impeachment. And to the, which the response is, well, that's exactly what an impeachment inquiry is. And so, you know, look, I don't want to get ahead of myself, um, but the whole purpose of the impeachment inquiry inquiry uh, is to get evidence and to get more people on the record. And, you know, look, I mean, we'll just let the facts speak for themselves. Um, you know, if everything that's been presented so far, uh, you know, just the even if it's not an impeachable offense, just the, the fact of the president asking foreign countries to investigate his political rivalry, rivalries, rivalries, um, is to me uh, enough of a an ex, uh, of a reason not to vote for him, um, and so you know guarantee you know this is going to be something that we're going to be talking about on the campaign trail, and you know Senator David Perdue, um, you know should should decide if he's going to defend, you know that posture, you know if it's not if it's Ukraine, is it other countries, um, and if he's willing to defend it, then you know I think that's a, another reason not to vote for him, you know for re-election. All right. Well, Mayor Ted Terry is a Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate. Mayor Terry, thanks for coming back on Peach Pie. Sure thing. Thanks a lot, Kyle. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.